pray. Lord, grant us rest in you right now and all the energy we need to listen and to speak. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The greatest problem facing the world is that the creator of the universe has sentenced every human being to everlasting condemnation because all of us have committed treason against him by giving the greatest affections we have for other things and not to him. We have exchanged the pleasures of our creator for the pleasures of creation. There is none righteous, no, not one, anywhere in the world. The natural human mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God, indeed it cannot. And those who have this treasonous state of mind cannot please God. We are all rebellious and ruined. Therefore, all mankind are by nature children of wrath. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness because we all suppress the truth. The whole creation is subjected to futility because of our sin. It groans in the bondage to corruption. The book of nature, the human conscience, the law of God all testify to this so that we know every mouth is stopped and the whole world is held accountable to God. Therefore, a great and final day of wrath is coming upon the earth. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and do not believe in the gospel of our, our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God who considers the power of your anger or your wrath according to the fear of you. So I say again, with as much absoluteness and seriousness and sorrow as I can see and feel from the Bible, the greatest problem facing the world, every people group on the planet, every culture in this world, the greatest problem is that our omnipotent creator has sentenced every human being to everlasting condemnation because we have all committed treason against him by giving our greatest affections to other things and not to him.
Everyone is lost and undone and ruined. That's the biggest problem in the world. And this rebellion of ours and this holy wrath of God are the source from which all the errors and all the ugliness and all the miseries of this world flow. Which means that every subject in this college, every issue faced in this seminary, every relationship in your life, every social issue that you deal with, every global issue you are aware of are distorted by these two forces. Our rebellion, God's wrath, which means that the reversal of this rebellion and the reversal of this wrath, wherever it could happen, would be personally, relationally, academically, socially, pervasively, globally relevant. Everywhere, all the time, in every way. Which means that if you knew, if you knew how the reversal of this rebellion could happen, or how the wrath of God could be reversed. And you spent your life savoring that and showing that to the world, you would be participating in the greatest purpose of the universe. And you would have not wasted your life. How could it be a waste to show the world the solution to its greatest problem? And how that solution affects everything. And you do know. <laughs> we know! We know! God has acted in Jesus Christ to bring about this solution. And we're focusing today on one central, glorious, inexpressibly amazing, stand on your head for joy aspect of this solution called justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible, let's go to Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 31 and see one of the most magnificent pictures of the reversal of the wrath of God in the Bible, in the world. Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things? 
That is, the things, <laughs> the unspeakably great things that have gone before in this chapter and these eight chapters. What should we say to these things? What's the upshot of it all? If God is for us, not against us in wrath. If God is for us, who can be against us? So there's the reversal. And one of its effects. God is for us and not in wrath against us. All the infinite power all the infinite wisdom, all the infinite goodness of the Creator working without pause, always, forever, on our behalf, for our good. And of course, when it says He's for us, <laughs> for us, it doesn't mean for our misery or for our sadness. It means for our holiness and our happiness, for our goodness and our gladness. As much good and as much gladness, as much purity and as much pleasure as an all-wise, all-powerful, all-good God, if he were to bend every effort on your behalf, could be or do for you. The infinite God for you and not against you bodes happiness beyond your wildest imagination. And from this reality, namely that God is for us, Paul draws out one result at the end of verse 31. Who can be against us? What's the answer to that question? No one, really. Look at verse 36. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So what does he mean that no one, no one can be against you? He means what they intend for evil, God intends for good. When they slaughter you like sheep, they serve you. Well, this text is a lie, which it isn't. You're not just a conqueror at that moment. You're super conqueror. You're more than a conqueror. Nobody can ruin you. Nobody can destroy you. Nobody can keep you from your greatest joy. Nobody can be successfully against you. Because an infinite, good, wise, all-controlling God is for you, for you, 100% for you, not angry anymore at all, never against you as you are slaughtered. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely, graciously, give us all things. The proof that God is for us 
and will not hold back his omnipotent power to be for us is that he didn't hold back his son. He didn't hold him back. It's the proof. If he did this, if he did not hold back his son, he won't hold back any omnipotent wisdom or effort or goodness on your behalf, none. It's all at your disposal for your good. Or Christ died in vain. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? What's the answer to that? No one, really. Jesus died under false charges. Paul was arrested, tried, died under false charges. Satan shoots flaming arrows against you every day with false accusations. The Christian faith is spoken against everywhere, Acts 28, 22, all the time. All the time, everywhere. Don't be surprised, tweeters. So what does Paul mean? No one can bring a charge against you. No one can bring a charge against you. He means no charge against God's elect will ever stick. Not one. All the enemies of the cross on earth, all the demons in hell may hurl their accusations against you. None of them will stick. Why, end of verse 33, it is God who justifies. So finally, this this is supposed to be a message about justification by faith alone. Here we are, finally. It is God who justifies justification. What is it? So here's the picture, you see it. Courtroom of heaven, there's a defendant, that's you. You're guilty. There's a prosecuting attorney with many, many witnesses against you. Accusations are flying. You feel them, you remember them, they're true. And then there's the judge, God. Of course, there's another person, but he's not on the scene yet. And in that courtroom, none of those true legitimate accusations are being allowed to stand. They're all being overruled. All of them, the most petty, the most grotesque. For one reason, it is God who justifies. God has declared that you're innocent. God has declared you're not guilty. God has declared you're a law keeper, not a law breaker. You are justified, even though in yourself, you're none of those things. It is God who justifies. Verse 34, who is to condemn? What's the answer? No one. How can that be? 
You're in, the, you're in the most holy, just court in the universe, and you're guilty. And you're not going to be condemned? Why not? Verse 34 at the end. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Now, to feel the force of that, and you're looking, turn back all the way to the front of the chapter, verse three, the most important verse in the Bible on penal substitution. Verse three, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin, punished sin, poured out a just penalty on sin in the flesh, and he had none. Jesus had none. That's the point of likeness of sinful flesh. He had none. So what's going on? How can in his flesh sin be punished when he has none? He was condemned and in his condemnation all who were in him were condemned in his flesh. Who is to condemn? No one. Why? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So the basis of our justification, the basis or foundation of God's declaring us not guilty, a law keeper instead of a law breaker, is the death of Christ. And he holds his death before the Father in perpetual application and intercession. And it follows, verse 35, there is no separation from the love of Christ ever. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. This is the great reversal. God is for us and not against us, 100% for us, totally for us. Who can bring a charge against us? Nobody. Who can condemn us? Nobody. Who can separate us? Nothing. Because God is the one who justifies, Christ is the one who died, and love is what keeps. Since God is for us, no accusation, no condemnation, no separation. And when Martin Luther saw this, everything changed. He had said, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. And he saw it, and he said, I felt 
that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. I'm looking at you and wondering, do you live in this paradise? Do you study in this paradise? Do you go to bed at night in this paradise? <laughs> We've entered paradise. He's for us and not against us. So at last we asked the question that I was assigned. <coughs> How do you get into this position? Who's he talking about? <coughs> How do you get into the position where God is 100% for you and not against you? How do you get in there? I want, I want in there. I want to be in that paradise. How do you get into the position where God is 100% for you and not ever at all against you? The answer of the New Testament is by faith alone. Now follow me. You need to be able to stand on this with all your might because of the accusations. Follow me. Just take a few texts. <coughs> Romans 3.28. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. If you want to study what the new perspective makes out of the term works of the law, I think the best little book on it is Justification Reconsidered by Stephen Westerholm, though I'm no expert. I think works of the law here and usually means any effort to, at law keeping, any effort at law keeping, which does imply that Luther, at least by way of the Interpretation got it right when he translated one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. I think that is implied there, but it doesn't say it. Let's look at another text. Philippians 3, 9. Paul aims to be found, quote, in Christ. That's crucial. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law law-keeping, but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So again, he is denying and affirming. He denies that the righteousness he needs in the presence of God is his own. It comes from law. And he affirms that the righteousness he needs in the presence of God is in Christ, in union with Christ, which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So again, not law-keeping, but faith implies faith alone. It gets clearer 
Galatians chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through law, Christ died to no purpose. So the righteousness we need before God is not through law, not through law keeping. Now, maybe, maybe though, it means not completely through law keeping. Maybe this is the room for a little bit. Maybe it's, it's really salvation by faith. It's just a little bit, a little bit of law keeping, like maybe just circumcision. That's not much. The most radical statement on this is Galatians 5, verses 1 to 3. If you were to push me to go to a text for faith alone, this is where I'd go. Maybe Andy will go there and really unpack it. I don't know where he's going on this. Galatians 5, 1 to 3. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to yoke of slavery, to yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, just one little effort at law keeping, if you accept circumcision, if you add that one little effort in addition to faith in Christ, Christ is no advantage to you. That's wildly radical. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. So, if you choose to rely just a little bit on law keeping as a way of getting justified, as a way of getting into a position where God is 100% for you, Christ is of no advantage to you. If you go the route of justification by faith plus a little bit of law keeping, you go the route of justification by total law keeping. All or nothing. Verse three again, mark that. Big asterisk, maybe in the iPhone 10 you can put an asterisk by it. One of the reasons why there are good reasons to read paper books. Verse three, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. There are two ways of justification. The way of law keeping which requires your perfection and the way of faith, which depends on Christ's perfection. These two paths into the place where God is 100% for you are so distinct they cannot be mixed at all. 
If you are trusting Christ for a righteous standing where God is 100% for you, you cannot mix one quiver of effort to establish your own righteousness. And if you are seeking to establish your own righteousness, your own record of virtue, as an entrance into the position where God is 100% for you, you cannot mix the slightest faith in Christ as your all-sufficient righteousness. They are mutually exclusive. It's one or the other, law-keeping to establish my righteousness or faith alone to rest in his. One last question. What is this faith? What's it like? What kind of thing is it? It is a receiving of Christ for who he really is. The beautiful, supreme, all-satisfying, treasure that he is as our divine substitute and sovereign. It is the receiving of Christ for who he is. Not as health insurance or fire insurance. How many hundreds of thousands of people are in our churches who have not received Christ as the beautiful, glorious, infinitely valuable, all-satisfying, sovereign, and substitute and treasure that he is and are not saved year after year in church. I grew up with so many. This is why faith inevitably transforms the heart and life. James. James. Saw it. He saw it. He saw what people were doing with faith alone. They were turning it into a doctrine that claimed you could be justified by a faith that had no good works whatsoever, didn't produce any transformation in your life. What would he say today? He said no to such faith. He said it's dead. Faith without works is dead to 17. He said it's like a body without breath to 26. He said it's like energy with no effect to 20. He said it's like energy with no completion to 22. He said if there's, if there's justifying faith, there will be, it has works. 
So he says, I will show you my faith by my works. I will show you. They will be confirmed by my works. I will show you my faith by my works. All of which Paul would agree with because of Galatians 5, 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love, the kind of faith that works through love is the only kind of faith that justifies. No love, faith is dead. Dead faith doesn't justify. The only kind of faith that counts for justification is the kind that produces love that bears the fruit of love. The faith which alone justifies is never alone. <laughs> Westminster Catechism. But always yielding a transforming fruit. So, when James says those controversial words in verse 24 of chapter two, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I take him to mean not by faith which is alone. But shows itself by works. Paul calls this effect or fruit or evidence of faith a work of faith. First Thessalonians 1.3, 2 Thessalonians 1.11. He calls it the obedience of faith. Romans 1.5. 1626, these works of faith and these fruit of faith or fruit of the Spirit that come by faith are necessary for final salvation. No holiness, no heaven. Which means if you were following last week's report of the big survey that was done by more evangelicals than any other survey, and they're not Protestant anymore, was a totally confused survey because the question they asked was, how do you get into heaven? You don't get into heaven by faith alone. You get justified by faith alone. You get into a position where God is 100% for you by faith alone, and in order to get into heaven, that faith must bear the fruit of love. Pursue the holiness without which you will not see the Lord. Put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. <laughs> it's the surveyors who are confused. Come on now, Bethlehem College and Seminary, don't be sloppy. We should not speak of getting into heaven at the last day, through the last judgment, when all of our lives are assessed for whether there's been any transformation confirming the reality of the faith which alone justifies. We should not say, you can live like the devil and get to heaven. 
You can't. There is a holiness without which we will not see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. So essential to the Christian life and necessary for final salvation is the killing of sin, Romans 8, 13, and the pursuit of holiness, Hebrews 12, 14. Mortification of sin, sanctification and holiness. And what makes that possible and pleasing to God is what? Now these next two sentences are absolutely crucial for your living the Christian life in a way that pleases the Lord. What makes it possible for you to kill sin, pursue holiness, which are essential for going to heaven? We put sin to death and we pursue holiness from a justified position where God is 100% for us. Already! By faith alone. You are in that position where God is 100% for you by faith alone and from that position you now put sins to death and you now pursue holiness from that position. And here's the second sentence that's all important. Because if we try to put sin to death and pursue holiness from a position where we're not fully accepted, not fully forgiven, not fully righteous in Christ, where God is not 100% for us, but maybe only 95% for us, then we will be putting sin to death and pursuing holiness as a means of getting in there. That is the Galatian heresy. Therefore, we are justified. We are put in a position where God is 100% for us by faith alone. A position in Christ where no accusation sticks, no condemnation holds, no separation ever comes. Brothers and sisters, we have been shown the solution to the world's greatest problem. You know it. We have entered paradise. We have stood on our head for joy. Have we not? Or haven't you? I hope you have or will. Everything has changed. Savor it. Show it to the world. They need it more than anything. Anything. And you will not have wasted your life. Let's pray. Father, go with us now in paradise and cause us to wonder that you are not against us but for us in Christ through faith alone. 
I ask this through Christ. Amen.